0: Hi there. Welcome to Nature Spirit, exploring the spirituality of a living world. I'm your host, Priscilla Stuckey. So we open today with some lines from Rumi. Let yourself be silently drawn by the stronger pull of what you really love. A decade ago, I entered a period of transformation. Live long enough, and a few such times a change will catch up with you, often after a big loss, a death, or divorce. This time, the change caught me unawares because it happened after a big joy. My first book had just been published, and I was ecstatic. Even more than that, I was relieved. I could point now to who I really was— All those decades of being an editor, smoothing sentences and organizing pages and paragraphs for others, had provided 10,000 hours of practice. All those years of coaching grad students in writing papers and theses were the proving ground, and it was all leading up to this. I was a writer. At last the pattern made sense. Of course, 55 is a little late to find out who you really are, but better late than never, right? Yet almost as soon as the book came out, I found myself feeling restless. Yes, giving readings was thrilling, finally getting to share the words that now appeared in a book, feeling a special hush settle around a group like a warm comforter each time I read aloud from its pages. But a hollow was forming inside me, just a little carved-out space, and it terrified me. It suggested I was looking for something else, something even deeper and more satisfying. I clapped back. No, I worked hard for this moment, and I intend to enjoy it. But each time I headed out on yet another publicity trip— The thrill of what I was doing provoked a darker companion, too, a shadow at my heels that had no name. The yearning gnawed at me. It disrupted my life. In hindsight, I can see that the transformation had been sneaking up on me for months, even years. Arriving at a mountaintop was just the excuse it needed to step up close, tap me on the shoulder, and say, Now. The call sent me deeper into unknown territory than I had any interest in going, and in this case, it was spiritual territory. Now, it's scary to enter unknown territory for any reason, but it's especially scary when that territory takes you two places at once, deeper into yourself and deeper into forbidden zones. And in this case, the forbidden zone was a place where the modern academic world says, do not pass. That place is the world of spirit, which to everyday thinking is the opposite of the material world. Because here in Western society, we draw a sharp line between things seen and things unseen, and on this side of the line is a solid and reassuring 3D world that we can see and touch and share with others, and on the other side of the line is who knows what, and it's off limits, at least if you want to be taken seriously in the so-called real world. And friends, I wanted to be taken seriously. I still do, I'm afraid. I may have tamed that craving a bit by now, but at the time, intellectual respectability was still high on my list of priorities. You'd think I'd gotten over that already. After all, I'd just published a book about listening to trees and talking with birds, and how connecting in these ways of the heart can open a person to being more human, more themselves in the world even more, how these ways of connecting are needed right now in our culture because they shrink us down to our real size. Human beings as listeners, just one organism in the whole community of organisms, everyone speaking, everyone listening, everyone equal. But no, I hadn't gotten over it. I still wanted to be taken seriously by other reasonable people. So when I felt the call to go even deeper into this thing I'd just written about, I resisted. I mean, it's one thing to talk about a connection beyond words as if it's a beautiful but fairly rare thing, something ineffable and gorgeous and mostly out of reach, and it's quite another to dive right into it, to engage in that kind of connection daily as a spiritual practice, and to live as if it's actually real because that will send you straight into the forbidden zone, and I didn't want to go there. It wasn't just the craving for respectability, to be honest. I was just plain scared. You know how when a call comes from those deeper places, it sounds so sweet, but it might demand things of you. It might ask you to change. And here I was, fresh arrived at a new mountain top, and getting there had been such a slog that I was ready to stay put for a while. I didn't want to glimpse another mountain beyond this one. I was tired of climbing. Yet something inside was definitely not right. I was a writer now, in my own eyes, but I didn't feel like writing. Matter of fact, I didn't even feel like reading. No, it was worse than that. I couldn't read. I felt so churned up inside that nothing could hold my attention. Every book I cracked just felt irrelevant. Something else was pressing for my attention, was pressing down on me, and pressing hard. So I did what I had done so many times. I turned inside, with fear and trembling, to find out what was churning. It was the move that had helped me so often over the years, to heal from trauma and to make sense of daily life, to set my feet on a good path. But this time, I engaged in the process not with a therapist, but with someone from the forbidden zone. Pushed to my own limit, I slid right over that line and started talking directly with spirit. Now, I grew up from my littlest days being taught how to pray, but I have to confess, when I prayed as a young person, or when I watched the adults around me praying, I rarely experienced something happening. It was like all these prayers were being sent out to a huge and empty sky. Was anyone out there even listening? Was there anyone even to listen? which is a big reason I'd spent most of my adult years in the role of a skeptic, a thoughtful one, to be sure, a skeptic who enjoyed poetry and mystery and who liked to talk about magical things in nature, but careful, most of the time, to speak as if. As if the world might be more mysterious than we think, as if there might be more. In educated public discourse, you just get taken more seriously if you use qualifiers and stay dubious. I had the skeptic's privilege, and I liked it. But my resolve had been chipped away. I was miserable inside, and I had no idea why, so I reached for something I wouldn't have been comfortable with before. I started talking with a bear. In spirit. The process was simple, sit in a quiet spot where I wouldn't be interrupted, pull out my phone with its voice recorder, prepare my mind and heart, and reach inside to see what images might appear. The quiet spot and the phone were easy, but preparing the mind and heart took some doing. I had to get past all the voices inside that had decided that this is stupid and you're making it all up. I had to try to get down to that quieter place inside, that more tender place where the breath is easy and the mind is open and easy too. I was working with a human mentor in this process and she would say, just set all that aside for a moment. And I would try, but it was a whole lot easier said than done. I would take a deep breath, focus again on this moment, on what was right before me, my own yearning to go deeper, to find out why I was so miserable, and thank all the powers that be, misery is a good motivator, I would set the doubts aside again. I would open to something more spacious and more supportive, or at least to the possibility of it. And when I found that sense of possibility, I would reach toward it in the dark and quiet behind my own eyes, to see what images might appear. With as much of an open mind and heart as I could muster, I would simply allow images to appear on that inner movie screen. And that's when the magic started to happen. Part of the deal the Western world makes in drawing a sharp line between things seen and unseen, between things that can and cannot be measured, is to exclude love and affection from our tools for understanding nature. Love and respect and empathy have no mass. They cannot be handled or plotted on a graph. So, in Western ways of knowing, they are at best irrelevant, and at worst, distractions, even distortions, from what we imagine as pure knowing, the kind that is free from personal feeling. It would be like trying to know our closest family members by leaving emotions out of the picture, by measuring our loved one's height and width, or counting the number of times they eat per day, or mapping how their eyes move when they interact with others of their kind. It's absurd, of course. We would know nothing about the depth of our connection to them, the claims they make on our hearts, the passions they inspire in us how bereft we would feel without their company. We would know about them, but we wouldn't know them. Which is all to say that in our personal relationships, we inhabit both sides of that sharp line without even thinking about it. With our family members, whether animal or human, we continually engage through our mind and heart and imagination. With our beloveds, we imagine possible futures, We think about what they mean to us. We feel our love for them and we tell them so. Philosopher and theologian Vine Deloria Jr. of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation said, The best things we experience and the best things we know are immaterial things. They are ideas or emotions. So we wouldn't dream of trying to understand family and friends without letting love and empathy bloom between us. Yet this is how we relate to our more-than-human neighbors on earth. We try to understand them by subtracting love and empathy and any other feelings or values from our learning about them. It's a way, we think, to keep our knowledge of them free of distortion. But it's also a neat trick we perform to keep the power between us and them grasped firmly in our own hands. Because subtracting love and empathy in any relationship means relieving ourselves of the responsibility to relate to others as peers, as equals. We don't have to acknowledge other creatures as whole beings, every bit as multidimensional in their own ways as we are in ours. We don't have to be vulnerable with them or open our hearts to them. And above all, we don't have to change. When I began to talk in spirit with a bear, I had to do all of these things. The first conversation alone changed me. As I sat there in the chilly darkness before dawn, wrapped in a blanket, holding my phone to record my halting words, I experienced something I'd never experienced before. I felt someone respond. As I put a hesitant question into words, an image would arise in my mind's eye. As I described that image for the recorder, another image would follow. The image would provoke a thought in me, and when I spoke my thought aloud, a response would follow. These images and responses did not come from my conscious mind. They were not of my devising. They were spontaneous, the way a friend might talk with you or spar with you, respond to your questions or suggest a new thought. I experienced someone on the other end of the line. That someone was a bear, a good-natured bear, a spirit bear whose image I could clearly see in my mind's eye. And this bear was chuckling at me for getting all tripped up over my own feet. But I couldn't even be offended, because if I looked at things in his way, they were kind of funny. And just seeing the humor helped my feet untangle a bit, helped my breathing ease. Bear's teasing humor was disconcerting. How could he be so jovial while I still felt so miserable? But his gentle good humor was irresistible, too. Almost every day after that, I went back for more. And each day I was met by the same good-natured bear. The first time was not a fluke. Conversations continued to happen. Images arrived in my mind's eye, surprising images that gave me perspective on things I was dealing with in everyday life. Over and over I was met by a bear who simply was there with loving and cheerful support, whose advice was only about how to be, never about what to do, and the how he suggested always nudged me toward becoming bigger in spirit, more spacious and open, less fretful about things and more willing to be amused, more willing overall to meet life with ease— More like water, surging free and strong. More like a bear, ready to sniff the air and enjoy where it leads. After only about two months of talking with bear, my sweetheart Tim, who by that time had known me for almost 40 years and lived with me for nine of them, looked at me one day and said, You seem happier. Many white people call this kind of meditation going on a shamanic journey. I don't call it that out of respect for my indigenous friends, for whom the word shamanic is a fraught word, a word of pain. To them, it would suggest that I am trying to copy native spiritual practices, which means, in fact, stealing. I want to be very clear. The meditative journeys I am describing are not patterned on any native practice that I know of, and they are not intended to imitate any kind of indigenous spirituality, not even any ancient practices of my own European ancestors. Neither did I learn the practice from any indigenous people, it was trees and birds who first ventured toward me out of the forbidden zone and showed me that this kind of talking in spirit is possible. And when my worldview had finally shifted enough to make room for such an idea, it was trees and birds who taught me that the sharp line that some humans draw between matter and spirit is just a construct it's only a line thought up by people who consider themselves superior to all other creatures on earth and who wanted to dominate them. Many other people arrange their cosmos differently. In most, if not all, indigenous traditions, spirit and matter are inseparable, just different aspects of the same reality flowing together in every being and place and force of the natural world which means that all parts of nature inhabit both material and immaterial reality. We're all equal, all complex, all communicating, all harboring hidden dimensions to our being. Indigenous writers often emphasize that trying to draw a sharp line between matter and spirit imposes an artificial construct on the natural world, and instead of simplifying the complexity They say, it merely dumbs down our understanding. Vine Deloria said it in his typically blunt way, Any damn fool can treat a living thing as if it were a machine, and establish conditions under which it is required to perform certain functions. All that is required is a sufficient application of brute force. The result of brute force is slavery." Reductionism is about the least efficient way to garner knowledge. When I began to talk in spirit with a bear, I had recently learned to know myself as a writer. But talking with bear over weeks and then months softened my attachment to that identity. I got hints of a different kind of role, something less defined and more spacious. One day when I was puzzling despairing, really, about ever understanding it, Bear showed me an image of a wide and brightly lighted highway, the kind that makes for smooth travel. Like every highway, it had on-ramps leading to it. For me, he said, writing was like an on-ramp. It was an access road, not the path itself. What was the highway then, I wanted to know. He fell silent. Ten years later, I still don't have a name for the bright highway, but it really doesn't matter anymore. I take this as a good sign, that I'm less preoccupied now with what to be and more ready to just be. In the last ten years, the road has led in directions I never imagined, including many changes I didn't welcome at the time. Hard changes, letting-go changes— I found myself following Rumi's advice to be drawn by the stronger pull of what you really love. It coincided deeply with the demeanor of a spirit bear who always encouraged slipping with more ease into one's own true nature. The path has taken all of me, but with less striving, a lot less effort, and a lot more joy. Some other lines from Rumi go like this. You're in your body like a plant is solid in the ground, yet you're wind. You're the diver's clothes lying empty on the beach. You're the fish. Leaving an empty set of clothes behind, it's a good way to live in a world of change and transformation, a world where the mysteries of other creatures stretch toward us and the mysteries inside confound us every day. When wings are sprouting or skin is thickening into scales and fins, the old clothes just won't fit anymore. Wishing each of us the courage to slip out of those old skins, to allow ourselves and other creatures to be more than we imagined, to slip into new ways of being and new ways of seeing. you've been listening to nature spirit a podcast with priscilla stuckey for a transcript of this episode or if you'd like to read further on the topic go to my website priscillastuckey.com and click on the nature spirit link or check out my books kissed by a fox and other stories of friendship in nature and tamed by a bear coming home to nature spirit self both published by counterpoint press until next time Be well and be blessed.